This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on TWIP, how much is too much? Nikon unveils a hot new camera body and an in-depth interview with Australian photographer Philip Andrews. All that and more coming your way next on episode number 86 of This Week in Photography. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. On the TWIP crew this week, we have... Alex Lindsay. Hey, Alex. Yo. We've got Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hello, everybody. <laughs> All right. And you sound normal this yeah, week. I threw, I threw Ron a, a, a curve because I said yo, and then he didn't know what to say. <laughs> you took his yo? <laughs> Come on. You got to have a signature acknowledgement there. <laughs> All right. Aaron Mailer. Hey, Aaron. Hey there. All right. And uh, we are missing Steve Simon. He had to actually go be a photographer this week. So uh, we'll have to pick him up next week and pick his brain about what was so important that he couldn't be on this week in photography. So we're okay. (laughs) We'll get over it. We'll get over it. I also want to remind folks that um, uh, twipphoto.com has morphed into photofocus.com. Alex Lindsay, you want to take us through what, what that means? Well, Scott has uh, you know rebranded Twip Photo as uh, Photo Focus, and he's got his own podcast where he's going to be uh, doing some great Q and A uh, stuff. So he, that is um, you can get more information about that on PhotoFocus.com. Uh, so make sure to check that out. And a reminder that we have our own uh, blog here at TwipLog.com uh, that that is in constant flux. Uh, because we are constantly playing with it, I'm constantly playing with it. Aaron's constantly playing with it. And I think Fred might stick his head in there. I am. I am. I'm moving so pixels every now and then. It's in beta. It's in beta. So make sure to check it out. So if you want to see Scott's uh, Photo Focus, which is a great podcast building up and a great blog that is uh, mature, uh, go up and uh, check that out at photofocus.com. And then also, if you want to uh, give us feedback on what we're doing with our blog at twiplog.com. Uh, go up and uh, check it out. Let us know what you think. It's it's in a state of flux for probably the next uh, month or two. As we, uh, it'll be in a constant state of flux. For most of the Give changes. me a break. Ninety percent of changes years. Exactly. Ninety percent of the changes will happen in the next two months. So your uh, your input is important to us. So check it out. Twiplog.com. All right, and uh, let's jump right into the news because there's a couple things, and I know we're gonna we're gonna drag this out just a little bit. Um, Alex, you uh, you let me borrow your Gigapan for a couple of weeks. It? it was it was cool. You know, I played with. It. I went through the tutorial on the Gigapan site. Which, by the way, companies who are putting out complex complex pieces of robotic hardware, go look at the Gigapan site. These, <laughs> you know, videos with the person that helped design it explaining how the thing works and how to put this together and and all this good stuff is is invaluable. More so than any PDF manual. What do you want to- Tell us what Gigapan is. You don't know what a Gigapan is? All you right. Know what a, uh, the, okay. All right. The Gigapan device. Right in talking about it. And <sighs> Curmudgeon. Maybe, you know, setting the stage. Curmudgeon. All right. The Gigapan device is, um, it's a robotic sort of tripod head or that, that you, the original Gigapan, you put a uh, point and shoot camera on and essentially what it does is generate a array of photos that you can then stick together using stitching software. So instead of you standing there and taking three pictures of the Grand Canyon, you put it on a gigapan and say, hey, I want this scene and I want it uh, in a hundred photos. And here's the top left corner and here's the bottom right corner. Go. 
and it will take pictures and move the precise distance that it needs to move between each one of those shots to create a grid of photos exactly that then you can take into software and stitch together. Have proper overlap and the, you know all those all those other things. It's it's pretty amazing when you it really is. want a huge photo. I mean, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but Greg Downing, you know, is the um, is kind of the, in the forefront of these kind of giga images. And, and if you've ever seen the image that he built of the, uh, I believe it was Yellowstone, it is Yosemite. Yosemite, I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah, Yosemite. The Yosemite Valley is gorgeous. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you've ever if you've ever tried to do some of this uh, panoramic photography manually, uh, especially, you know, fairly involved ones that are five or more shots across and up and down, and you get about halfway through it, and you're like, wait, did, did I just do that yeah. row or not? Yeah, and just, I always put, when I'm, I'm shooting pianos, I always put my hand in front of it at the beginning of the of the uh, you know in the, the first frame yeah. that I shoot. Put my hand there so I know that that's a new set. And you'll also see, oftentimes see my hand halfway through the set because I had to start over because I couldn't remember. I was like, oh, I yeah. that one. I do the exact same thing. Only I I, I throw up a number like because I know I'm going to make a couple of them. So I go, <laughs> this is sequence one. There's a finger with a one holding up. And I do the sequence and then hold up the one again. To to bookmark or to bookend it, and then I'll hold up a two and do another sequence and keep going now, through like that. Now these guys have a new pano rig out, right? Yes, they do. They have a uh, what is it? The Gigapan Epic Imager, which is the problem with the with the the original ones. Is the, it was great, but it would only hold a point and shoot camera. The new one uh, holds larger cameras, including smallish. I'm holding up quote the quote signal, whatever uh, smallish DSLRs. So. Um, you know, I think. What do you what do you call a smallish DSLR? I mean, is that a <laughs> a what? Three X. You know, they, yeah. it's probably not the D three or the or the five D Mark II. Those are probably cameras that are larger than what this like, thing is. Aaron, Aaron, you looked at it. It's not even it's not even like the forty D, right? It's only the real smaller. No, it's like the three hundred D range, if I'm not mistaken. It's mm-hmm. definitely the smaller of the DSLRs, which kind of bugged me a little because I'm waiting for the one I can put a five D Mark II in. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, the technology is there, so you just need to make it more robust, right? It's going to be a beast to hold a camera like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it just makes it a lot more expensive, and trying to get it accurate and everything else is a to challenge. Play, to mention something, uh, Alex mentioned a moment ago, uh, just for other listeners, if you want a little more background on this, episode number fifty-eight of TWIP uh, was our interview with the correct Greg Downing for uh, for Gigapixel Images, and you can find that on twiplog.com. Excellent. And uh, and Nikon now has a new. Uh, camera right they do they have the uh, d5000 which i twittered about um and pointed people over to where did i point people to i think it was uh one of your properties mr brinkman uh dp review so it was uh yeah they released it, this is a smallish camera this what is this a replacement for the um what's the the, the previous camera that is replacing aaron uh no, I'm not an icon guy. Oh, so where's Steve when I need him? I know. I think this falls into like this D90. Really, this is, I think it's yeah. D90. You know, I should have said that. Yeah. Well, the D90 just came out, so I think it, I don't know. I guess the bottom I'm line sorry. is I don't know. I don't have this camera. I'm sorry, it's not the D90. It is, um, but it's similar. It's got the same, uh, the same sensor. Same sensor. That's yeah. right. Same sensor as a D90. Yeah, and. and yeah. Video, it shoot video. It'll have it has an extended ISO of one hundred to sixty four hundred. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, it it is compatible with the GPS unit, which I think is pretty nifty. That is really cool, and it has an articulated LCD on the back, which is kind of cool for 
shooting above crowds and having the LCD angled down at you so you could see what you're actually photographing. You know, that is far, those, those articulated uh, LCD screens are far more useful than I think that people give them credit for. A lot of people will say, oh, I don't know if I really need that. But it is so awesome to have, uh, to be able to pull that thing out and, and get kind of around the corner or above people's head. Um, it's a really, really great feature there. Yeah. yeah is, is lightweight body code for, you know, plastic body or, you know, Reduced build Probably. quality for this price range. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. Another thing that it has here that's kind of cool is the uh, and one thing that I'd like to you know I I, I would like to test is uh, it it is has a live uh, live out uh, video out via the HDMI port um, up to 1080i. Oh. Uh, and one of the things that I one of the things I want to test with some of these cameras that I haven't had the opportunity to test yet is whether that output is uh, compressed or uncompressed. Um, in many right. Uh, in many camcorders, it is not compressed. Um, it is uncompressed, and so you could end up with a really nice, uh, you know, output out of these little cameras. Um, and that's something that we we want to test in here. We just haven't had the time to get get to it yet. Yeah. Well, it uh, it'll be shipping later this month, and uh, retail is going to be seven hundred and twenty nine dollars and ninety five cents in the United States. So, right. are you going to get one, Alex? No, of course not. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You you are in purgatory right now or in between I am, cameras. I am, I am officially in the I don't have an SLR purgatory, which I have to fix soon. My my wife dropped my camera. I think I might have mentioned that on the show earlier. And mm-hmm. and, um, and so now it's now, it, you know, now I have to make the decision uh, very, very soon about what kind of SLR I'm getting. I can I can put it off for another week or two, but I think I'm going to have to come down and, and buy one. And every day I'm still like, Oh, I'm gonna get the D700. Then, then the next day, I'm like, oh, I want the Mark II, and 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 um, the decision will be made uh, by the end of the month. I have a feeling you've already made the decision. You're just I holding haven't. Out. That's the worst part. Is that I really wish I could. I really want. I really. There's a lot of things about Nikon and the D700 that I really like, and and if and and I, but I still want the opportunity to use video. You know, I mean, you know, for little things that you know, interviews and things that I'm doing, uh, you know, I have another trip coming in, in Europe and it'd be really nice to be able to just have one camera that I can kind of shoot that stuff with. Uh, and so I'm still trying to, you know, you, know, you could just, just, you know, spend that 730 bucks and get the D 5000, which has video. It'll be a nice mm-hmm. little tide you over camera body the, until I you have, get your D three or D four. Right. Uh, conversation <laughs> has been floating around in the office that maybe I just get an in-between camera because uh-huh. I'm not happy. With, you know, there's part of me that just doesn't want to spend $3,000 or $2,500 on a camera that isn't exactly what I want. You know, it's just just neither none of these cameras in, in that range or or any of the expensive ranges. I just know that, you know, and I know people complain about us talking about convergence, so I'm not going to get into it too much. But I just know that they're converging. I want to full. If I'm going to spend that much money, I want to spend a, have a fully converged camera. Yeah. Um. And and so I may I may I may go back and look at the five thousand. We'll see. Yeah. How's your lens investment fit into the picture? You know, I haven't spent a lot of money. I I. Had, I I left Nikon and I got I was angry with Nikon. This is part of why I haven't bought the Nikon. In the, I was angry that we weren't getting I, I couldn't get the SDK for it. Uh, I was you know frustrated by you know a bunch of them closing off the raw format a while ago, and so mm-hmm. I just I got rid of Nikon and six thousand dollars worth of glass. Wow, and, where and was so, I when that happened? <laughs> you know, I, I, was, well, I left I left a bunch of it in Africa. I had a, we had a guy that I work with a lot. Um, in uh, Zimbabwe, and he helps me a lot. And so I gave him my Nikon and a bunch of glass, a bunch of really expensive glass, and um, and uh, as just a as a gift. And so um, uh, and so he shoots stuff down in Africa, and uh, so that's where my Nikon glass went. And 
anyway, so I, I, because that I got burnt so badly with the Canon, I've, you know, rented lenses and borrowed lenses and I have, I have a, I have a, a fisheye and I have my 50 and I have a zoom lens and that's about it. And so I'm not that committed. You know, I have about $1,500 of glass that's, that's floating around for the, the Canon. So I'm not, it's definitely doable for me to move. Uh, okay. and so, so that's the, um, and, and that's part of, I'm getting to the point where I want to buy more lenses. So part of this is all this big conversation of which way I'm going to, you know, because if I, even if I buy an in-between lens, in-between body, it means that I have to buy, you know, that's the direction I'm going to go with my lenses too. And so Ron, Ron very- Brinkman, what, what are you shooting with and, and are you staying with it? I'm staying with it for now. We've got a Canon 40D. I've got a fair amount of uh, lens investment. Uh, you know, the, the Nikon 700 is is very enticing, but I also just figure, you know, that there's going to be a video guised version of that one as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's, it's the kind of thing where you just have to pick a point to jump in right now. I haven't been doing enough photography because I've been rather busy with other things that buying it now would almost just be a an impulse buy. Yeah. But... It would make you feel bad looking at the unopened box, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I will probably stick with what I have. It certainly takes excellent photos. It's better than anything I had, you know, two years ago. And wait a minute, the camera takes excellent photos, or do you take yes, excellent photos? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be clear because if it takes excellent photos, then I want to get it. So he just he just picks it up and it just starts firing off. It's, it's, it sort of hand, leads my hand around, and you know, the force it waits until the light just does exactly right. That new force-based camera. It, you know, yeah, you know, four o'clock in the morning, it tells me that you know sunrise is coming. And I need to get up and do it and be in place. Yeah. Well, you, you know, a lot of people ask me if I'm gonna jump on that D five thousand, and I, I think it's it's a great body and it'd be great to play with. And just like any camera that comes out, um, any of these new cameras or these new bodies, I think they're all amazing, and I have geek lust for them. But the stuff that I have right now. I'm still learning how to use it, you know, like the speed lights that I got, the, the SB900 or, you know, and the, the 800 and trying to figure out the CLS system and just experimenting with all these different things that I can play with, with the existing gear that I have is like adding more on top of that is a little scary. It's a thing, you know, a, a good accessory, a, a different lens or a yeah. flash system or something like that is is really, you know, more likely to sort of step up your game than putting a new camera into the mix. Right. Yeah, unless you get the one that you have and it and it takes great pictures. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick second to uh, give a nod to our sponsor, Audible, which today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. They're the leading provider in spoken word entertainment, and they have over 50,000 titles to choose from and can be downloaded and played back anywhere. I, yeah, I, you know, so I bought my parents over uh, last week, I bought them a uh, iPods. Oh, and look at you! What, which which iPod? The real one, little, like the good ones? Little Nanos. Oh, okay. So I got not not the shuffles, but the Nanos. It was just something to get them, you know, to get them into it. And they had never used iTunes, and they had never used. Uh, they 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 were using, I think, simply audio or something like that, where they rent them and everything else. And I showed them iPod and the Audible dot com because <laughs> they love books. You know, they just they they listen to tons and tons and tons of books, and they just weren't using Audible. And uh, my it took my dad about fifteen minutes, and then he was like, "Okay, we're going to cancel our subscription to the other the other site." Very and, cool. Uh, and move on to audible.com so he's uh, he, they are they are happy and uh, and sucking up you know tons of books from audible now yeah yeah it's great i mean between between audible and podcasts that i keep subscribing to and my kindle yeah there's, there's no reason there's, there's no, no reason room for you ever to be alone in your head <laughs> exactly no, never 
reason to be alone in their head. There's always something that can just be chattering into you so that you can never calm down. Oh, I'm wait, looking sorry, forward no. to long flights now. So, <laughs> no, Aaron, I know you have a book recommendation. You've, you've been, you're in the middle of something. What, what is it? You want to talk about it? Yeah, actually, um, as listeners know, as I've made recommendations in the past, I have a, a real love of historical fiction. Um, and the one I'm currently in, I'm right about 50% through it right now and have clearly heard enough to recommend this wholeheartedly. Uh, it's Bernard Cornwell's book, Agincourt. Uh, Agincourt, Agincourt, not sure which way I should say that exactly, but um, it's uh, around the Battle of Agincourt, Henry V. Uh, it follows the uh, f- uh, fictional um, uh, archer. Uh, through the course of the story. Beautifully done, and I have to say the narration on it is top-notch. Uh, Charles Keating is the name of the narrator. Um, I can assure you he is not the guy from the Saving of the Loan scandal in the 1980s. Um, well, you know, although although that, would, that would make a lot of sense. You know, you had yeah, to it's, get it certainly could. <laughs> <laughs> and I will mention, too, I've already gotten recommendations from others, too, that uh, since I'm enjoying this is my first Bernard Cornwell book, um, his Sharp series uh, is also uh, available through Audible, and I plan to plunge into those next. Um, and on a side note, I will mention that I just finished prior to this uh, 1776 by David McCullough, which was fantastic. It's narrated by the author, by McCullough itself. So if you have an interest in the, in the history of, of literally the year 1776, not the revolution overall, but just that, that kind of cutting that critical year out of the history and analyzing it, um, it is beautifully done as well. I need to put out a book on 1986. That was a very interesting year, too. Mm-hmm. For me. <laughs> <laughs> Alex had his uh, afro back then, didn't you? <laughs> uh, Remind everybody that you can get a, a free audio book at audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And I like the way Alex just you rolled over that. Over you rolled over that comment. Talking. No, you, I won't. That just what's the news? That just draws me into it more, Alex Lindsay. Sorry. So it turns out that Hilco and the Gordon brothers acquires the Polaroid brand and assets. So about that, no, yeah, yeah. So does that mean Polaroid is is has been absorbed completely, and there's no more SX70 film going to be available? A good friend of mine, Jim Hyde, who's on uh, on Flickr and sort of he's famous, uh, or he's he's a very well-known book author. He writes on iLife and all sorts of uh, th- that kind of stuff. Yeah, he speaks at Macworld, what, Macro Magazine and blah, 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 all this stuff. And he's a really good guy. And one of his private secret passions is whipping out his Polaroid SX-70 or whichever one he happens to have with him at the time that he purchased off eBay and taking really cool Polaroid shots, scanning them and putting them online. So does this mean that Jim's little hobby is over? I wonder. I- I'm going to bet that it is. I think that what they're going to do is there has been talk and and people have been, you know, playing with this idea of having cameras that are actually printing, you know, but they're just printing images as you shoot them. You know, and I think that that's if they're going to take a Polaroid brand forward, I don't think they're going to be using chemical processes. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, I would love to see SX-70 survive. I love taking Polaroids. Uh, I just don't think that I think they're going to use the brand, but they're going to connect that. What, what people know Polaroid for is uh, instant feedback, you know, yeah. instant ratification of I get something hard copy from that. And I think that you could extend that brand uh, to having a camera that can that's capable of printing that or printers where you're near the camera and they print as you fire, you know, take pictures, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's more likely what we're going to see from from Polaroid. Yeah. And today's generation doesn't even 
most of them don't know what shake it like a Polaroid picture actually means, right? So, you know, that that whole that experience of, okay, the picture is developing before my eyes is sort of archaic now to a lot of a lot of people that grew up with digital anyway. So I think morphing the morphing the brand into something that's more of a, hey, you have a camera and a uh, inkjet printer in your back pocket would probably be the right thing to do for these people. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So leave it alone, Alex. We're going to move on. Okay, just let it go. So let's move on from that into the picks of the week. We need some picks of the week music so you can transition into the picks. Yeah. How's that? That's perfect. Alex, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm noticing that, uh, you know, in my notes here, I don't have a pick of the week for you. So I'm going to start with you. That's what you mentioned before I put it in there. It's there. It's there now. Uh, the, uh, so I, I, I don't think I, I have recommended this. Uh, I've talked about it in the past. Uh, and I may have recommended it. I don't think I've done it since we started the picks of the week. But the East Star, did I, have I talked about the East Starling? Yes, but it hasn't okay. been a recommendation. You're right. So. Okay, so I bought a couple of East Starlings. Um, these are photo frames. Now, here's the difference between, and this is the only way I buy a photo frame for a family, is that the East Starling specifically, and I got the V, the Impact, I guess, so the V Impact uh, East Starling. It's about one hundred and seventy nine dollars, and. I'm sorry. The Impact Seven is the one that I got, and um, here's the deal: this 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 uh, frame will take. It's 800 by 600, but but more importantly, it will take uh, any image that you have. You can email the images, subscribe to RSS feeds, uh, subscribe, you know, to Flickr feeds, your iPhoto feed, your whatever. You can send videos to it, and it'll play back, and it'll just simply go through them all. Now, the the key here is that a lot of frames do this. What they don't do is they don't they all almost all of them require you to be connected to a computer so you have to connect to your pc or your or your mac or you have to have put little smart cards in and this can do that but it doesn't have to you simply log it into your wi-fi at home so i uh, and what i did is i gave these frames uh to my um parents on both sides so my wife's parents and and my parents they are crazy about this frame. So it's not just me recommending this frame. It is the fact that my my parents and my parents-in-law are crazy about the frame uh, because I can send pictures of my of my son and uh, and they all get to see them, or, you know, and uh, and I gave the the email to all my brothers and sisters on my on my side. And so everyone's sending stuff to the frame. So my parents have this frame that sits in the TV room that just changes and it has all their grandkids and all their, you know, the whole family is just constantly changing. Uh, and it's just, they are so happy with it. And, um, and so, uh, you know, after testing it, I think I've talked about it. I put, set some stuff up, but watching the reaction, um, it is just an, if you want to keep your extended family in touch with what you're doing, especially your parents or grandparents or whatever, that is just such a great gift uh it's 179 dollars and um and as i said it doesn't need to be tethered to anything you can simply log in the interface uh which it's using a thing called c frame is really it just just got updated over the last month or two mm. super easy to throw photos onto it uh, without your parents knowing anything about it they just you set it up and then you walk away and then they never have to think about it again and you can constantly be managing what now they, they the parents have to have a wi-fi network in place right or do you plug it into it to a an ethernet if they or? don't have Wi-Fi in place, then you would need to plug it in, or you'd need to use cards. It's just uh, mm-hmm. the you know a lot of our parents now do have yeah, Wi-Fi absolutely. in place, and so yeah, it does. What makes it really easy is the fact that both my my parents on both sides have a Wi-Fi um, uh, installed, and this will handle you know WEP or WPA. So if they you know uh, if it's locked down, uh, it's a little you know a little bit of work to get it 
connected. Uh, but once it's once it's connected, as I said, on a wireless connection, uh, your parents don't need to know anything about it. So what you know, it just sits there and it changes. They don't have to reconnect it to the computer or anything else. How secure is that email address? Because I can imagine some uh, some folks getting a hold of that and sending images to your frames that you don't necessarily want in there. Yeah, you can you can actually set it up so that it'll only receive from certain email addresses. Cool. So you can you can say you know I you know. Uh, it's just a regular email address that you send photos to, and, and, and unlocked, it will simply say, it'll just simply post whatever goes to it. Uh, but the uh, if you lo- you can lock it down in the C Frame web page that says only accept photos from these emails. Oh. You know, so um, so you you can uh, increase that uh, increase the security. I think for the average person, they wouldn't have to worry too much about people hacking into their to their frames. Um, but it is great to make sure it doesn't get spammed or doesn't get, you know, if it's in their, uh, address book or whatever. That's cool. Um, and, and there's no way to avoid it completely. I mean, you can also just make sure it's only to an RSS feed and it's logged. In. You can have it logged into it, to a Flickr feed that's, you know, private you can do all those things as well. That's so cool. you could make it a lot more, uh, secure by using those kind of feeds. Uh, but it's great that you can just email it if you want. For instance, you could be, you know, on a trip and you could have the family seen there and you're taking pictures with your iPhone and just sending it to it from your iPhone or from your BlackBerry or, or from whatever you have that you're taking photos with. And you could be just emailing, this is my trip in Europe and whoever's at home could be seeing that in real time. I mean, like literally minutes after you shoot it. That is really be, cool. They could look at it. So um, it's pretty nifty. That's cool. And how much is that? 179 bucks. $79. And you can send video. So like we, 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 we posted video uh, of uh, the ultrasound. <laughs> oh. That's how I told my parents that we were expecting. <laughs> wow. Did you get a call like five minutes later? Yeah, reaction. <laughs> so. That's cool. What, so just not to spend too much time on that, but what, what size video do you send it in what format? Is just a you know, mo- quick as, time? Uh, I sent it as a quick time uh, or I think a, an MP4 and it was pretty small, like 320 by 240. I mean, that's kind of what I got it as. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I haven't, I don't know what all the specs are for what it can play back, but that's what I sent. That's what I sent to it. Very cool. Um, it, it worked great. All right. May have to get one of those and start establishing a, a East Starling network in my family. Ron, what is your pick of the week? So this is a, a quickie little piece of free software. It only runs on a Mac. I'm sure there's a, an equivalent on, on PCs, but it's called Exif Renamer. And it's just a handy little tool that I use quite a bit with all my photos um, for just renaming them from the default naming that comes out of the camera to something that's based on the timestamp uh, in the EXIF data. Just real easy to use. You just kind of grab a bunch of photos, uh, drag them down, and drop them onto the icon. And you can sort of have preset exactly the the format that you want. So you can, it's got a lot of configura- configurability on, uh, you know, do I want to have year, date, month, or do I want to have it go down to the seconds? It's very smart about not overlapping photos if they were taken you know a fraction of a second apart it'll, it'll name them differently and i you know for me i mean i know that both lightroom and, and aperture will let you kind of rename negatives when they come in and, and put them around but I, this just kind of become part of my workflow as, as soon as i pull stuff off of the card i keep it on the the hard drive first before i go into aperture and, and a lot of times i won't even go into to aperture uh, you know for days or weeks so i'll build up a catalog of photos I know I've taken, but I just haven't gotten around to dealing with it. Uh, and this is just sort of the first part of my process is I just go ahead and rename everything by a date timestamp instead. And then it's real easy looking back to know sort of when, when it came from. So it's called XF Renamer, and we'll put a link on the show notes. Very cool. How much is that? It is exactly nothing. Oh, even better. Zero Alex's. 
<laughs> Zero. <laughs> Very cool. Aaron, what's your what's your pick of the week? Um, my pick of the week uh, is the Think Tank Photo Airport Airstream. It's the rolling camera bag system, which has been a tremendous boon for me. Um, you guys have mentioned before that we all seem to have a huge collection of camera bags for different reasons. I've got probably four of them sitting here near me, uh, which I choose different ones for different purposes, uh, depending on what I'm shooting, what I'm carrying, so on. Uh, but one of the formats I've kind of fallen into lately is um, I will carry the bulk of my gear to any event or any work I'm doing, uh, which includes a couple of bodies, multiple lenses, uh, metering systems, you know, a ton of different things in this uh, nice, wonderful, secure, very, very durable uh, airport airstream. Um, you know, it's kind of like your rolling luggage, nice extendable handle, um, takes a lot of the weight off of you, and I use it to get from point A to point B. Um, once I'm on location, if it's an event, I'll probably just work out of that bag. But if I'm taking it somewhere where I'm then going to head out somewhere else, I usually have the uh, the sling-type bag that I mentioned a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. From, uh, I carry that with me, and I kind of consider that my away bag, essentially. So both of them will go with me to a lot of things if I'm going to branch out from where I am, but uh, I'm going to carry the bulk of my equipment in the uh, think tank system. And it fits perfectly in the overhead or underfoot in an airplane, which is uh, pretty excellent when you're traveling and flying. So thought I would mention that. It's about $289 list price. Price may vary a little bit from dealers. And I will put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It looks like just like your standard suitcase kind of. Mm-hmm. So yep. which yep. which I would assume would deter thievery, right? Yeah, it looks a lot less like you're rolling, you know, expensive camera gear around with you yeah. in the process. So uh, it's it's pretty indistinguishable in that regard. But it does have a locking mechanism on it that's TSA, you know, uh, approved and so on with a combination lock on it and so on and so forth. So I, I just really like the build quality of it tremendously. It's got nice uh, wheels on it that roll very smoothly. And apparently the the plan or the, uh, the warranty that comes with it uh, includes replacement of those wheels if at any point in time you wear them out. Very cool. All right, my pick of the week is is a little thing that I actually saw on Twitter from David Pogue of the New York Times. He's the technology editor uh, who's now Twittering. And he uh, he posted this thing as the ultimate lens cap. It's called Fast Cap. And what it is, basically, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it, essentially it's a lens cap that stays affixed to your camera and just sort of pops open on a little hinge so that you can uh, not ever lose your lens cap, which I think would be really cool for maybe like that D5000 where you're not really going to be changing lenses too much on it and you have one lens and you don't want to have to worry about fiddling for the lens cap or throwing it in your back pocket or whatever. It's just always there. Um, and it's really cheap. I don't, what's the, uh, what's the price of that thing? Did we put a link in there? I think it is. It can't be that expensive. Page is still yeah, trying to load. It's expensive. It's, um, uh, let's see. I'm looking. I still don't see the price of it. Buy online now. I'm going to go ahead and buy it right now. We'll see. I don't know. Whatever. We'll put the link in the show notes of how much it is. It's just a lens cap. <laughs> so it'll be pretty, pretty cheap. Uh, still looking, still don't see it. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll find I'm it. Put it caveat. Sorry, one little caveat I'd toss out on lens caps like that is they're fairly large in the sense of what protrudes from the front of the lens. So if you've got a really wide-angle lens, you need to be careful because you may actually start to see them show up. Oh, you mean just sort of in the edge if you're shooting with a with yeah, like a 14 exactly. millimeter or something? Just a little bit of, of vignetting into it. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for that uh, that time delay to help me find it, and I still haven't found it, Ron. So never mind. I was trying. <laughs> <laughs> that is teamwork and it still didn't work oh well um, 795 you found it look at that 
Yes. CSI Mailer. Up their product name on BBNH. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> seven. Oh, that was seven dollars and ninety-five cents worth of effort to find the thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's move on to the photo assignment and current poll. Aaron, you want to dive into this one? Certainly. Uh, we are in week three um, of our current assignment. Uh, the single topic word was spring. Um, once again, as we've said in past weeks, based on the time of year, it seems obvious uh, what we may be asking for, but we're putting emphasis on more creative interpretations than that. So um, plenty of stuff showing up in the Flickr uh assignment pool right now, which, by the way, we keep the top, uh, or the most current, not top, but the most current, uh, I think four or five images are now on the sidebar on twiplog.com, so you can keep an eye on things. But uh, some beautiful imagery in there for sure, so it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting contest here at the end of next week. Um, also, our poll, uh, the poll we had from last week is tied to the blog, and I think we're going to stick with that again this week, because we're in this beta phase with the blog, and it's kind of important to us to know. So... It's going to continue for another week, but as it stands right now, uh, the question was, what resource would be most important to you on the new TWIP log? Um, by far, 47% of our listeners and readers want the episode show notes, so that seems to be one of the biggest resources used there. Um, and I won't go through all this in detail, but uh, second to that would be uh, people are looking for a Picks of the Week archive, so the picks we just came out of, we're going to start archiving those on there and linking them to the vendors, which would include directly a link to the $7.95 for your Fast Mac. Um, uh, lens cap there. Uh, second to that would be the TWIP topic or photography fact, which is something I think we'll develop over time. And just a quick rundown, a new home for the monthly photo assignments may end up there. That's 7% of the listeners. Discussion forums, 8%. Uh, and 9% would be photo galleries containing photos from TWIP listeners and show hosts. So that's where it stands now. We're going to run it another week. I don't think the numbers are probably going to change a whole lot considering the lead for the show notes, but uh, we'll move on to another topic next week or a week after next. All right, cool. Thanks a lot, Aaron. And now we're going to jump into this week's interview with Philip Andrews. I'm here with Mr. Philip Andrews. Uh, I think this might be one of the longest distance uh, interviews that I've conducted, aside from the Rebecca interview. Uh, Philip is uh, in Brisbane, Australia right now. We're speaking through Skype. Philip Andrews is a photographer. He's an author. He's a publisher and an entrepreneur. And he's on TWIP right now. Hey, Philip. Hi, Frederick. Great to be here, mate. And uh, just remember, because I'm speaking from Australia, I'm actually speaking upside down at the moment. So, <laughs> and, and your toilets are flushing counterclockwise, right? <laughs> exactly. You've got it. You saw the Simpsons episode, obviously. <laughs> no, I think I saw that on a Discovery Channel thing. Or something. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. A little more lowbrow, perhaps. That, that pesky equator getting in the way. <laughs> That's it. That's awesome. Thanks for coming on, Philip. You and I go way back since uh, my days at Adobe, at least, right? So we, correct. Correct. We, we've had several conversations about all men of photography things but now we're being recorded for the record and for the twip audience so they get a chance to hear our ranting and rambling terrific no look it's it's great to be here and thanks for the opportunity hey no worries so the first thing the, i think the newest thing on my mind uh you sent me an email the other day you launched a new piece of software called dr doff or dr depth of field you want to talk That's a little it. bit talk a little bit about that and what's it for sure Sure. I mean, uh, we, we started looking at um, ways that we could provide some uh, photographic gizmos or widgets for photographers uh, that they could carry around with them uh, the moment that 
that phones got a bit smarter. So we were looking at Sony Ericsson, we were looking at Nokia, we were looking at all sorts of phones. And when the iPhone was uh, first released, we thought, oh, this is cool. You know, it's got it's got the visual element that photographers like. And uh, so the last few months, we've been uh, looking at the iPhone and doing some development. We've got about five or six widgets uh, on the go at the moment. And the first one that we've got released uh, is Dr. Doff. And it's essentially a, a depth of field or a sharpness uh, calculator. Um, and has multiple levels that people can access it at. You can you can look at visual uh, examples of images. You can say that's the sort of look I want for this portrait, and basically click on a button, and it'll give you the settings that you need to set your camera for in order to to get that look in your image. But there's also other levels that you can go to. You can customize um, the, the the application itself for your specific camera gear so you can put in your own lenses your own cameras uh, and multiple cameras and have all of the settings inside Dr. Doff kind of customized for that and for the geeks and real experts in the audience there's uh, there's an expert mode which has things like a, a single button hyperfocal distance that you can click on there and automatically get the focus point that'll ensure and the settings to ensure uh, you get sharpness right the way through to the horizon uh, or the far distance and we also have um, uniquely we have something called reverse doff where um, most of the time with these kind of calculators you put in your aperture you put in your focal length and your subject distance and you get a an indication of how much of the scene is going to be sharp well we've actually been able to calculate the reverse of that as well so if you want this part of the scene sharp right the way through to that part of the scene two different measurements the near focus and or near distance and the far distance well then we're able to calculate the settings that you need to set your camera to in order to get that depth of field which is very sophisticated stuff uh, i can't lay claim to doing the maths behind that at all frederick i'm a <laughs> photographer thankfully there's smarter people than me working in uh, fosmo.com uh, which is the company that's making these widgets who is able to do those uh, calculations um, and as you would expect because uh, my background's in publishing and photography uh, in the application itself we've got loads of resources as well full you know glossary or uh, jargon buster in there we've also got loads of articles about uh, you know what is depth of field what are the factors that affect depth of field what's yeah. circular confusion all this kind of stuff that you know that that I write about in books and magazines it's right there in your uh, iPhone app so would you, would you say this application is for uh, beginners to jumping in and, and wanting wanting to experiment with different different depth of field techniques and optical sort of moving things around to see what works or it, would it be equally useful for a pro or an advanced amateur who is relatively comfortable with aperture or you know with the uh, with the aperture settings and all that stuff I, th I think um, what we've tried to do is make sure that there's an entry point for, for uh, photographers of all different levels. So, as I mentioned, you can go by visual examples uh, where you say, this is the way that I want my image to look and then get your settings from there. You can go by a quick calculator where you go in and set your aperture, you set your focal length and set your subject distance and you'll get an indication of your sharpness, uh, how much sharpness you have in the image. Um, you can also, for the experts, go to the expert screen and play around with some some of the even underlying assumptions that we make when we're assuming um, sharpness uh, and depth of field calculations. For instance, most calculators you see out there, the ones that you see on the web uh, or the ones that you buy for your iPhone, 
assume um, a specific sharpness for your image based on viewing a 10 by 8 uh, photograph uh, at about 20 centimetres or 25 centimetres. Now, none of them will allow you to adjust those assumptions. Now, what if you're actually wanting to check out your sharpness on an, on an A3 or a large poster size print um, and uh, that's going to be viewed from two or three feet back? they don't allow you to make adjustments to those kind of assumptions. So right. the calculations you're making are for a different use. Uh, Dr. Doff actually lets you get in and tweak the underlying assumptions, which is something that, that no other um, utility will let you do. So yes, from the entry level, you don't need to go know about all the geeky stuff. You can just get in there, get the information, put it on your camera and get great shots. Or from the expert level where you can do reverse Doff calculations, you can um, tweak the underlying assumptions and all that. That sort of stuff. So we tried to look at a whole range of different levels um, and help people get the information that they really need about sharpness in their image uh, right in their pocket on their iPhone, which they always have with them, whether they're out and about shooting on landscapes or whether they're in the studio or whether they're just doing some portraits of the family. So, um, which is cool, you know, and you can go to uh, uh, www.fosmo.com, that's P-H-O-Z-M-O.com and uh, see... Dr. Doff in action using the videos there, so oh, you'll cool. actually see see the videos of the, of the uh, application in action. What's the what's the the cost? What's the price point? Uh, it's different in different countries. Uh, I believe it's uh, six ninety nine in the states. Um, so it's it's a good price given the depth of information in there and the multiple entry points and the fact that you can customize the whole application for your own camera bag. So the kit that you have in your camera bag, your lens, your camera, and multiple camera bodies, you can customize it uh, for for that particular kit. So uh, you're actually getting settings that your camera equipment has, not settings that we've arbitrarily picked for you. Um, and just just uh, for your for your listeners as well, Frederick, we're happy to to do a competition with them, um, and we're giving away five uh, copies of uh, of the application. So if you've got an iPhone and you want to win a copy of the application, we'll send you out a code. If you win, and you can down, download it from the iTunes App Store, and all you need to do is send in a uh, an email to us um, at competition at Fosmo. That's p h o z m o dot com. And uh, and just put your name on that, and uh, we'll draw a winner uh, probably on about the 25th of this month. Uh, sorry, we'll draw five winners on about the 25th of this month, and contact them by email. So uh, get out, get on in there and uh, and uh, see if you can win yourself a copy. Excellent, and that's just for TWIP listeners only, right? That's it. Only TWIP listeners, so no one else is going to get access to that competition. Very cool. Uh, and if you just if you're just interested in it, go and have a look at the the videos on the website. It's pretty funny because we've managed to uh, get a finger uh, pointing on the videos to actually uh, on the videos that we recorded on the iPhone, which is looks pretty cool. That's <laughs> so. awesome. Now, Phil, you're you're also involved with a magazine down there in in Australia called Better Photoshop Techniques. Correct. So, what? What aside from the obvious, from the title, what what kind of things do you cover in there? What kind of articles about Photoshop? Well, it's a it's a quarterly mag, and it's one that we uh, we started up uh, about three or four years ago in response to just the level of uh, information that people need about techniques for not just Photoshop, but also Photoshop elements, uh, Lightroom, Bridge, uh, Adobe Camera Raw, all of these uh, various uh, tools that we use to make great images. And uh, it's a, it's a unique publication because it has very few adverts in it at all. It's about 148 pages. It's packed. I mean, you've seen it 
at Frederick, you, you know the quality of the printing and the quality of the photography in there. And uh, we have uh, subscribers from all over the world, even though it's a magazine that's produced for the Australian New Zealand market in the news agents and bookstores. Uh, we have uh, subscribers all over the world. And you can easily, if you're interested, have a look at betterphotoshoptechniques.com uh, to get more information uh, about the magazine. You know, I think one of the things that's happened in photography in the last few years is that a lot of the initial learning about digital, um, most of us have a, a good understanding, a good basic understanding of digital now. We want to move on and start to get into, get away from kind of gimmickry uh, in our techniques and get into quality image production. And I think that a magazine like Better Photoshop Techniques really helps people take their image making to the next level in terms of uh, quality in terms of uh, quality of output as well as uh, quality of capture and quality of manipulation. Yeah. So speaking of manipulation and Photoshop, CS4 was, or Photoshop CS4 was uh, released uh, several weeks ago um, or months ago, and it's out there in the wild. Can you, uh, from your perspective, being an expert in writing articles all the time about the software, what's, what's in CS4 that photographers should care about? Well, I think it's I think it's really interesting because in in some ways I mean what I hear when I'm I'm demonstrating um, in in front of uh, big audiences demonstrating CS4 kind of features top ten features is is people go okay right the um, uh, the new scaling technology that allows us to to scale um, backgrounds. Um, uh, in, without making foregrounds kind of um, uh, adjust as well is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, the new kind of on on photo adjustments that we can do in Adobe Camera Raw and also with um, uh, with the curves uh, palette as well and things like that are pretty cool. But but what people don't seem to realise is that in a kind of quiet way because it's not screaming at you from the interface, uh, CS4 has actually changed the very nature of editing for photographers. So it's it's almost turned editing on its head, the editing that we've been doing for the last 10 years, because it's made, um, it's made us start to edit in a non-destructive way um, without the pain of all of the stuff that we used to have to do in order to edit in that way. The thing about Lightroom and Adobe Camera Raw is that they're two programs that have that have got people thinking about the ability to edit our images and enhance our images without ever changing the underlying pixels. And the thing that um, one of the big changes in CS4 for me is that we can actually start to work much more easily in CS4 in the same way. Yeah. So when we are, when we're actually starting to um, do selections and use the adjustment panel uh, inside CS4, we can jump backwards and forwards between, say, a levels adjustment layer, a hue saturation adjustment layer, um, and we never have to actually apply those changes directly to the image itself. We're just applying them to the layer. And this means we've got that incredible non-destructive nature um, to uh, to our enhancements, which means the the original pixels we captured, those virgin pixels, are always maintained, which is just fantastic. You know, as a photographer, we, we want to maintain the 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 uh, untouched nature of those pixels as much as we can, because that's where the that's where the value in our images are. That's where all the care and concern that we we take when we're actually capturing those images is actually stored. So, I think that that's incredible. 
incredible. Yeah. Um, I think that Adobe Camera Raw 5 is just a huge leap forward in terms of raw processing for the photographer that has Photoshop as their main editing package. And uh, it's in step with Lightroom in terms of um, the localized adjustments. So you've got your adjustment brush and also your graduated filter. So if you're using Lightroom and you're used to those features, if you're using Lightroom 2 rather and you're used to those features, well, they're, they're available in a Adobe Camera Raw as well, which is cool. Um, and so there's a lot tighter knit between uh, Adobe Camera Raw and Lightroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot easier to pass files backwards and forwards and, and have all your changes recognized uh, in both packages. So if you're, you're working in a studio environment or with other people who are working on raw files as well, then there's no kind of poor second cousin there if you're working with Photoshop and Adobe Camera Raw or if you're working with Lightroom. Now, didn't, didn't uh, so, you write a book? You wrote a book on CS4, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. CS4, uh, Photoshop CS4 Essential Skills with a, an, another guy from down under called Mark Gaylor. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a substantial book, uh, over 400 pages. But one of the key aspects to it is that you end up with over 12 hours of uh, video, uh, video tutorials included with the book um, in a DVD that's uh, included with the book. So if, if you're like a lot of people these days and prefer to be, prefer to be shown how how to do uh, the activity or the project, um, then the raw files are there on the DVD that you can use uh, to actually work along with the projects and there's the video tutorials so that you can work along with Mark and myself uh, as we work through the basics of uh, all editing, uh, enhancing output and also capture in using CS4. Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a ton of stuff in the in the application that people just don't know it's just buried just below the surface but it, it, a lot of power belies the uh the simplicity of the ui that they put together exactly and i think you know a lot of people when they're first opening cs4 they look for the differences in the ui and and say to themselves oh okay there's an extra panel here and yes we've got a mass panel as well and okay we can do a couple of different things here that we couldn't do before but i i think that that really misses the point a little bit the cs4 because we're fundamentally the the guys at adobe uh the engineers at adobe who put together cs4 are basically saying to us you now have the power to work non-destructively with smart objects adjustment layers, um, quick selection tools, all these kind of tools that enable us to work in a much smarter uh, and and more protective way for, to our images than we've ever been able to do before. And I think that, that's largely gone unnoticed. Um, and if you're a person who, who's, who's concerned about your images, a person who cares about your images, a person who would never have, you know, taken a set of negatives and scratched it with a with, with a, your fingernail or cut it with a pair of scissors, well, then you're the sort of person that CS4 is really aimed at yeah. because, uh, you know, those same, that same kind of care and concern you can show to editing and handling your digital files when you're using non-destructive kind of professional workflows. So right. now, when you're when you're looking at so that, that's Photoshop CS4, but you know, photographers of course are going to care about Lightroom. Uh, sure, or Lightroom too. So there's a ton of features in there. Of course, I know. Used to work on the application or work with the folks that worked on the application. What what rises to the top of the crop in your head of the the most the most noteworthy or the features that photographers could care about most in this release? Yeah, you know, the thing that, that's really attractive to me about working in Lightroom is the fact that um, the guys and girls who are, you know, have made the product know that photographers are visual people. 
So um, they have a whole bunch of stuff in there that it, uh, allows you to interact directly with uh, either the image or the histogram, for instance. So instead of instead of tweaking some slider controls um, to to change highlights and shadow detail and things like that, which we have in other applications, you can get in there and you can actually either tweak those parts of the image by clicking and dragging on the image itself, which is really cool because it's a very direct kind of way of working with the image. Or you can click and drag on the histogram and make changes to the tones and the colors in your image uh, based on dragging around a histogram. It's very direct. It, it feels, you know, it's almost painterly in a way in the sense that you're interacting with the image in order to get changes to the image. And I really like that kind of analogy. I like that way of working with, with images. So I think that's one thing that, that I've found particularly uh, enticing about working with Lightroom. The other thing is that, that it... It's, it's kind of like a stylized workflow. All of the good bits are there. All of the bits that most people don't use or use very little are not there. So you've only got the guts. You've only got the stuff that really makes sense. The, the stuff that you use every day is right there. Um, and when Lightroom first came out in version one, I think some people, and there might be snobbery, I don't know what, I think some people saw how how stylized, saw how uh, on the surface, how simple it looked and went, oh, how can you get professional results from this? But the reality is that they've they simplified and distilled the whole interface down so much that all of the stuff that you need is there. None of the stuff that you don't need isn't there, uh, is there rather. And, um, and when you really need to dig deep into it, you can and still get that level of quality. And a, a classic example of this is the fact that they've released the utility in beta and it's available on labs.adobe.com mm -hmm. and it's called the DNG Profile Editor. And uh, one of the things that were, people were looking at with, uh, with raw shooters was um, the ability to try and tweak the colors in your camera capture is a bit tricky when you're a raw shooter because once you take the, the photo in raw uh, file format, drop it into Adobe Camera Raw or Lightroom, you can adjust your colors, adjust your white balance, adjust your tone, your contrast, your brightness, all of those sorts of things to your heart's content before you then push it off to Photoshop and it becomes you know, a PSD or something like that that um, so this left traditional methods for creating a an ICC profile for our cameras out in the cold because those ICC profiles are used in Photoshop uh, as a way of uh, getting accurate color or color getting accurate color for your for your camera capture because we've got so much control in the raw state we don't really have that uh, situation anymore and this dng profile editor allows you to photograph the the little x right color checker it's the one you've probably seen it before it's got uh, a bunch of different colors on it and some grayscale colors as well you can pull it into the color checker you convert it to a dng format which is the adobe open source uh, raw format yeah and uh, you pull that into the color into the uh um, profile editor and you can do all of your white balance checking on there so you can do advanced white balance checking if you're working under mixed lights or you're a landscape photographer or a architectural photographer with strange lighter kind of lights in your in your scene you can just place this color checker in the scene get an incredibly accurate white balance setting and then apply it across all the images that you have in Lightroom um, because you've created a profile specific for that lighting balance um, if you're if you're a wedding portrait photographer and you've got 
you know, three guys in your studio, one shooting Nikon, one shooting Canon, one shooting Sony. Uh, all of those cameras respond to color and to light and to tone in a different way. Using the DNG profile editor, you can actually um, develop a common profile or a common response across all those camera bodies. And if they're all on the same job, the same wedding shoot, uh, when you actually go to tweak all of those images, you apply this profile to the particular cameras and you'll get much more consistent results across all those camera bodies. It's it's incredibly exciting uh, way of working. Uh, and if you're not a geek, if you're more into the kind of artistic side of things, you can even go in and create your own styles. Lots of different cameras like Nikon Camera Now, Canon now, and even Sony, I think, as well, also have their own style. So you might have landscape or portrait style. It might emphasize um, skin tones or emphasize sky color, uh, you know, blue skies or green grass or yeah. or things like that. Well, you can go in and actually make your own personal styles. Um, so you can say, all right, I'm photographing a lot in Australia where the grass is pretty uh, brown most of the time because a lot of the areas are kind of desert areas. So you want to emphasize the richness of that brown. You want to add some more red to it, but you also want the contrast of the blue sky. So you can actually go in and tweak and push and pull those colors around, create it your own specific style, and then apply that style as a profile file in Lightroom or Adobe Camera Raw to all the images that you take in the landscape. And so you'll end up with that kind of Frederick look uh, or you end up with that Philip Andrews look, you know, whether it's portrait look or a landscape look or a travel style look. Yeah. Um, it's very cool. So you can uh, create, I, create signature styles with exactly with, that in starting points. Now, what about what about? Uh, and I don't know. This this may be a, a question that's that's too far that, uh, far out there, but. Um, you know, Apple has Aperture out there. Yeah. There's Lightroom yep. too. Then they're they're going head to head, of course, in terms of market share and mind share mm. for with mm. photographers. Uh, yeah. Aside from you know me being the former marketing manager for Lightroom, I know I know all the marketing behind Lightroom and why it's an important application for photographers and all that. But on the Apple side, you know, you've got you've got that ecosystem. You've got Aperture and you've got yep. iPhoto and yep. and how they yep. work so well together and all that. So both of us not being tied to either one of those companies which mm. why why one or the other i i think that both we're kind of hedging my bets a little bit here i guess mm -hmm. but but um both have real strengths um on the aperture side and the apple side of things i think what that what that particular product brings is a, is a system um, the tie-in with iPhoto, the tie-in with uh, you know the book production, uh, the tie-in with uh, even just simple things like uh, you can release shutter from inside Aperture, uh, so you can you can shoot your photos tethered, shoot your camera tethered from your laptop, which a lot of photographers are doing not just in studio these days, but out in in uh, in situ in landscape architecture, um, because it gives them a big screen that they can actually do their previews on, a big screen that they can do their checking of their histograms. You can do that inside Aperture. You can't do that inside Lightroom. Um, you can, sure, in Lightroom, you can go out to web, you can go out to screen, you can go out uh, to print, but from Aperture, you can also go out to, um, you know, your, those fantastic Apple books, those photo books that, that you can produce, the calendars, all that sort of stuff. Is is It's all part of the same kind of workflow, and in some ways, it feels like an end 
end-to-end solution uh, to a photographer. You buy into that system and you've got an end-to-end solution. Um, you can even go out to your iPhone as, you know, a, a little gallery on your iPhone. Very cool. All that stuff is – Apple seems to get that system-wide connection stuff really well yeah. um, because they have control over hardware. They have control over software as well, which I think gives them advantage in that area. Lightroom, on the other hand, I think one of the key elements and the key strengths of Lightroom, which Aperture doesn't possess, is the close integration with Photoshop. And this is never more so apparent than with the latest versions, Lightroom 2 and Photoshop CS4. The exiting out of Lightroom as a smart object into Photoshop CS4, for me, is one of the killer reasons to get Lightroom 2 and CS4. Because when you're working with your RAW files inside Lightroom, you're, you're working non-destructively. So the, the adjustments that you're making are not changing those um, original pixels that you capture. Yeah. Um, by tying into Photoshop using smart objects, you can then take that same picture into Photoshop and maintain the non-destructive nature of your adjustments that you had inside Lightroom, which which is something that Aperture hasn't been able to do because, you know, uh, Adobe's working with two of their own products. They understand the underlying implications of moving backwards and forwards. They understand um, that whole concept between uh, behind non-destructive professional workflows. And so I think... Um, uh, depending on the type of shooter you are, depending on what you're trying to get and what, how much control you want and, and what are your key concerns, I think that there are two – yes, they, they do compete, but there are real differences where, that will lead you to one solution over another solution. Yeah. So am I hedging? Am I hedging my bets too much, Frederick? No, know. no, that's good. You know, I don't. I don't want you to to smack down any one or the other. But you know, <laughs> you know, we every everyone knows it's a it's a. You know, it's it's a personal preference. It's just like Mac versus PC. You know, one, yeah, it's sure. it's how you work and how the software interfaces best with your mind, and and how the feature set speaks best to the things that you need it to do. So, you know, and on both ends, they're both both pieces of software are just crazy good, and you can't go yeah. wrong either yeah. way. And it just depends and, on what you want to do and where your skills. And you are. know, the great thing is you can download them, play with them, and make up your mind for yourself. Don't believe me? Don't believe you? Get the software on your machine. Do what, do something with it that you, that you normally do with your images. See what you feel comfortable with, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you'll find that there'll be a workflow, there'll be uh, a killer feature, there'll be uh, a mindset that sits with one particular, um, you know, program that just works better for you. Yeah, and uh, exactly. so the decision's made. Yeah. It's like Nikon versus Canon, you know. It, yeah. In the end, who cares what you shoot with? It's all about the image, right? <laughs> Correct. And you and you and I have had a lot of discussions about that, Frederick. And and you know that uh, you know, common to both our passions is is the is image making. And yep. uh, whether you're playing with Photoshop, Lightroom, Photoshop Elements, Aperture, whether you're playing with anything, what we've always got to not lose sight of is that image is king. You know, forget what you're using to, to take the image, forget what you're using to print the image, forget what you're using to manipulate the image. Let's make sure we're all making better images, you know. Fantastic images are, is just a, a wonderful thing to behold. And uh, we've got so many great tools, but let's not get lost in the tools. Let's get lost in the in the wonderment of great images. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, and I, I try to tell people that all the time. We On the show, we, we joke back and forth about Nikon versus Canon and all this stuff stuff but in the end when someone who's not a photographer is looking at your work 
either online or hanging on the wall, they're not going to ask, hmm, was that a Nikon or was that a Canon? Yeah. They're going to look yeah. at the, the photo and judge it on the aesthetics of the photo and how pleasing it is to them. No one's going to care. You know, it's like a famous yeah. painter. You don't ask what kind of paintbrush that person was no, using. You're right. You look at the artwork. So in the exactly. end, it's a lot of it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, chest thumping for nothing with the between the applications and the the hardware and all this stuff. Yeah. Forget about it and just shoot great photos and, and concentrate on the light and the shadow. I mean, of of course, there's some kind of uh, elements to do with uh, the hardware or the software that either restricts you or enables you to get better images. And then you've got to you've got to discern which is the best. Uh, I mean, at the moment, I'm sitting outside both Nikon and Canon. I'm I'm shooting with the new uh, Sony A900 and and the Zeiss lenses that come with that. And yeah. And uh, they're they're a distinct kind of look and feel to those Zeiss lenses, like uh, the bokeh. You know, the the actual the the out of focus areas of your image um, different lenses will give you different look and feel to those out of focus areas of your image and if you if you're like me uh, and you like having really shallow depth of field and it's one of the reasons why I got involved with Dr. Doff in the first place is I love shallow depth of field and I love the out of focus or the unsharp bits just as much as the sharp bits then then quality of the lens or the way in which the lens actually depicts those those uh, out of focus bits the bokeh uh, I think is really important and um, and you know people don't think about that when they're buying the lens buying a lens they, they think about is it sharp they think about what the aperture range is what the focal length range is if it's a zoom lens but they all it's also an interesting comparison to look at what how do the out of focus bits look as well because yeah. they're i mean i'm sounding like i'm off with the pixies but you know there's a beauty in that out of focus stuff as well yeah no i i agree and that's why i shoot wide open yeah, <laughs> as much cool. as I can, I I think life just looks better at f one four when some of it's out of focus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Philip, thanks thanks a lot for taking the time out of your what is it afternoon Look, there pleasure. right now? It's it, this was over your lunch break or something, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, if I'm fading, it's because I haven't had my coffee and my lunch. So, but. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for staying up because it, it's uh, it's the next day here and I can tell you it's a beauty. Oh, nice. Thank you. Well, th- yeah, we'll be enjoying that in a couple hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> the sun will the sun will make it around or the earth will spin around and we'll get the sun on this side. So That's it. That's yeah. it. Always, well, always a pleasure, Frederick. Always yeah. a pleasure. And we will meet again soon, my friend. Get on get on the cool. plane and get up here so we can uh, we can chat in Or vice versa. All right. Thanks a lot, Philip. Cheers, mate. And that was Philip Andrews, uh, the photographer from Down Under, photographer, author, and entrepreneur down in Brisbane, Australia. We'll put some links to the the stuff that Philip was talking about in the show notes, but uh, do check it out and take advantage of the uh, the coupon code that he mentioned to uh, download that photo, the uh, depth of field calculator, Doctor Doff, which is pretty interesting for your iPhone. Let's jump into listener questions now. The first one. Uh, I'm going to throw over to my friend Ron Brinkman to read an answer. Ron, take it away. All right. This is from listener Aaron Alahanan. And he says, hey, guys, I love the show. Keep the great work. You know, we probably don't need to put that at the front of all of these emails we get, but it sounds sort of uh, self-serving, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You don't actually have to read that part, though. (laughs) You can take it out. I'm just saying. But he says... 
I'm just slightly confused over file formats. Let's say I shoot an image in JPEG on my camera. Not that I do. The file size of the image is about 4 to 8 megabytes. But on my computer, when I post-process and convert the JPEG to a TIFF, it quadruples in size to about 30 megabytes. If I shot in a lossy format to begin with, where does all this extra data come from? Uh, it's, it's an excellent question, and uh, it kind of goes with sort of how computers store this information versus displaying it. You know, when you, when you store something in a JPEG, it's really a, there's a little kind of an algorithm attached to it where uh, the lossy part of it is, is, for example, the JPEG algorithm will look at these, you know, a couple of pixels or maybe three pixels next to each other and say, well, they're all about the same color. So I can get away with just storing one color entry instead of three. So you can see why you're losing information there. But when you load it back into your you know, Photoshop or whatever, uh, it takes that information, reconstructs what it thinks is the best guess for what the original photo is, and then it has you know, stored in memory in the full resolution. So every pixel has its own color. And there's no kind of additional tagging that says, well, this originally came from this JPEG. So you're back to the full resolution of that. And if you store it as a TIFF, it has no way of knowing that it was originally a JPEG at one point. So it has no way of going back to the compression. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing because you can sometimes store something as a TIFF and think that you never stepped on it and then don't really realize that it's gone through the JPEG conversion and you've actually lost data and you think you've got the full resolution when you really don't. But that's kind of the reasoning behind it. Very cool. All right, Aaron, you want to take on this next one? Certainly. Uh, this was from listener Don Barlow, who uh, apparently flies a lot and enjoys listening to the show in his flights. Uh, and he recently switched from iPhoto to Lightroom, and he tags the JPEGs to iPhoto uh, from his RAW files. And he loves the flexibility of RAW, but he's noticing that the color saturation uh, is never as good in his RAW images as the JPEGs that he would get out of his camera. Um, and my response to that, it's, it's pretty normal, actually. Um, a RAW image is just that. It's the raw sensor data. When your camera stores a JPEG, uh, the camera tends to do its own interpretation based on a color model and all defined by the manufacturer. And often, if you look in the menus on your camera, you can find that you can tweak uh, for the JPEGs, um, you know, increases or decreases in saturation and other aspects of the image. So it's taking the raw data in the camera, applying those things, which very often are going to pump up the saturation a good bit, and then making the kind of baked JPEG in the end. The raw image, by comparison, is literally just the raw information and any interpretation of that as far as how saturated it looks is more in the hands of the software you're using and, and Lightroom is what you're using in this case same as me. Uh, so what's happening there is Adobe is applying uh, either their own or a combination of um, their interpretation of the RAW and their interpretation of your model camera's rendering of that image. Uh, so there's a couple ways you could approach that though. Um, you can actually alter the color profile of the camera and make your own for the color cal calibration section of Lightroom and that's done with a tool uh, called the Adobe DNG profile editor but that actually might be a little more than you want to get into or need to get into because the other approach would be bring in some raw images um, adjust them in the development module to the model that you like. I mean, the type of saturation, a degree of saturation you like, and other adjustments. Um, and maybe model it on the JPEGs if you like that uh, particular approach. Save that development of that profile um, or save that uh, development settings uh, as a user as user settings, and then during your import process from that point on, you can then select that and have that automatically applied. This is something Fred was mentioning earlier back in our discussion about the uh, Danish photographer, is the ability essentially to to 
allow you to define the profile that you want applied to your images. It'll be done automatically during the import. So by the time those files land on your screen and are rendered in Lightroom, they're going to look more like the JPEGs you had before. And it might make sense to do a couple of different profiles. You might do some for uh, for landscape photography, for portrait photography. Really opens up a lot of doors, and it will cut out that extra step of doing per image editing, you know, on every one of those images that comes in. Ron, anybody else have anything to contribute to that? No, that pretty much covers it. I think it's uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's just it's really useful not to have it do all that work because you're you know you're not you don't want to be committed, <laughs> right? You know to the to whatever the, the the computer thinks it should do. You know you want to be right. able to do it later, so it's great. Yeah, and I, I think it, it it the whole thing speaks to just people having a fundamental and better understanding of what raw is and how it's just a bucket of zeros and ones and how you interpret that. Uh, whether you let the camera do it for you, i.e. JPEG, or you do it after the fact, i.e. Lightroom or Aperture, and render something out, it's still pulling from that same immovable bucket of data. So, but but something is doing the interpretation. Yes, kind of the point we were making earlier is that you know you're not really looking, you're never really looking at the raw file. You're always sort of looking at an interpretation of the data in that. Right. Yeah. Aperture and Lightroom, for instance, would take that raw file and probably give it to you in two slightly different views, as well as the software that comes with your Nikon. They're all going to give you a little bit different interpretation of that image. Not that you couldn't bring them all into line with one another by making adjustments in each case, but they're all going to be a different interpretation. And one thing, I'll, and this kind of goes beyond your question a little bit, I will mention too that when you do this, of course, in a raw workflow, you are not modifying the raw image in any way. All of the changes that you're making are simply you know, metadata or information that Lightroom itself is storing and continually applying to your view of that image from that point on. So when you do generate a TIFF or a JPEG or something from your final image, that's when those settings will be baked in. But the original RAW file is always going to be the you know, potentially desaturated kind of bland source image. But that's in your favor, too, because you can come back and reinterpret that image over and over again in the future as software changes and the technology changes. Yeah, it always reminds me of, of The Matrix. You know how in the, in the Matrix where you have Neo and he's, he's looking at it and there's all these green zeros and ones and crazy characters flying around and then it sort of fades into reality and what the interpretation of the matrix is um it's the same thing you know but under underneath that interpretation is the, are the zeros and ones or the the un uh unable to be rendered by human minds matrix and then the computer needs to step in to make it renderable or make it understandable by us mere humans so, Alex, the uh, you, there's a question in here with your name on it, and it's got the word blimps in it. You want to explain? <laughs> <laughs> so this is from uh, Chris Dugas, I think. Uh, and he said, uh, he, said uh, he has been selected to photograph a film set for an independent documentary. Pretty much uh, from the research he's done, he knows he needs a camera blimp. Um, un, uh, unless there's another way to silence the the sensor, uh, he said he's shooting with a D300. Do you guys have any tips or tricks? Uh, anything I should be prepared for? Uh, and so uh, he said, of course, he knows not to do the uh, be in the eyesight line for the actors. Uh, of course, we all heard Christian Bale talk about um, give his commentary on why that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so anyway, so the the. Uh, I, so what he's asking me, I talked about shooting uh, um, for in this movie in Japan. I shot a lot of behind the scenes. Now, there was someone who was officially shooting, and I was unofficially shooting. Uh, but there's a couple things about shooting on a film set, and, and Ron can probably jump in a little bit if I, uh, if I go off here. But number one is there's a lot of uh, – a lot of times the actors are rehearsing. You know, they'll rehearse a couple times, or they'll, they'll be working on little bits of it or, or working on blocking 
to me, that's the best time to take a photo. <laughs> so uh, I take most of the photos that I do for behind the scenes. If I'm, if we're working on something while we're rehearsing, where it looks almost identical, but not identical to what's going on so that I don't have to think about whether I'm going to make any noise or be a distraction during the actual live shoot. Uh, so most of the time I'm trying to, um, you know, I'm shooting the same thing. And as I said, as they're blocking it and figuring it out, it's going to look very, very similar uh, to what's ever. I also will shoot as much as I can during a setup, you know, when they're uh, before they really get to their lines or, or everything, you know, and I'm trying to capture that stuff. Um, uh, a blimp, by the way, what he was referring to is oftentimes what looks like a pelican case with a big button on it. Uh, and it's just packed with sound so that you can push the button and you have no control over the camera, which I don't really like that much. Uh, or you have very little control over the camera. Uh, and so, uh, but it keeps it very quiet so you can take pictures while they're actually shooting. Uh, and that's something that I, I, I haven't done. Almost all the stuff that I've been I, shooting. I don't, yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever been on a film set where I saw somebody shooting with a blimp. It's more a matter of um, it's more a matter of understanding set etiquette and just not shooting yeah. when you're really rolling camera. Right. Yeah. You get, there's, t there's usually an enormous amount of opportunities to shoot that aren't happening when the camera's rolling and to get all the behind the scenes that you're looking for and all the things that you're going to want. Uh, and, and usually it's not that necessary to shoot during the, the actual piece. If I'm doing that, I'm not shooting with an SLR. So if I'm taking a photo of the behind the scenes, whether it's movies or images, I'm using a, um, a uh, point and shoot. And the LX3 is what I have on set. Uh, and I'll shoot with that and have all the beeps and all the other sounds turned off. Uh, so if I'm going to shoot during that period of time, uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm on the other side of the actors, <laughs> away from the cameras, uh, and I'm just simply firing those things off while they're doing it. And that works pretty well, I think. Uh, and you don't, you don't hear it. Uh, and, and that's those are the big things, but as Ron said, set etiquette is the most important part of yeah, your job. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's really that's really I mean, for anybody that goes onto a film set, not just a photographer. Understanding that, you know, uh, unless you have a specific job to do, you need to make sure you are completely out of the way, and uh, and quiet, and your phone is turned off, and uh, you know all of those. And I've seen people, you know, get into all of those situations, and and uh, maybe not quite as as vitriolic. Let me, let me, as, let me just remind you of how I just want to tell you how embarrassing it is. No, this did not happen to me, but when a cell phone goes off uh, during a uh, a touching scene where the actors are crying, mm -hmm. uh, really. You know, that's pretty much the end of your shooting <laughs> on that. Set. Absolutely. I've seen people, you know, basically kicked off the soundstage for, for doing stuff like that. So understanding yeah. the etiquette. The other thing I would say is as a set photographer, um, you know, one really smart thing to do, you got to understand that you're there to kind of document it. But you're also kind of there to make sure people look good or look cool, depending on who you're taking the photos of. So, you know, get the actors, but also be aware of where the lighting is when you're taking pictures of the actors. You know, so if you can get them you know, rehearsing their lines or, you know, often like right after the scene ends, uh, you've got the nice cinematic lighting on them. So make sure you don't take unflattering photos of them. If you're taking photos of the director, make sure, you know, you, you get them doing something that looks directorly and, and uh, commanding because that's, you know, it's what they want out of this is they want to have some something they can use for publicity photos or something like that. Uh, some you know just consider what you're doing and and you know cast just generally the crew as well uh, get them doing their job and it's not a lot of time that you'll necessarily uh, if you're working as you know one of the lower end crew crew members a little bit further down the food chain you won't get photographed that often but it's sometimes a nice thing to do just because it sort of makes them feel like they're important and it never hurts to have you know a few grips on your side when you're walking around the set. So there's there's some suggestions. There you go. And the next question is. 
for me. Actually, it's a very short question, so I'm going to take another one after this. So this one, um, Anthony Malazzo just wants to know what my camera settings are on my D700. Uh, typically, I'm shooting an aperture priority, and I switch between uh, matrix and spot metering depending on what I'm shooting. So I guess the, the real answer is it depends. So depends on what the subject is. Typically, uh, for much of what I'm shooting, matrix Matrix metering mode is uh, it's really good on the Nikon, so I, I typically stay in there, and I'm shooting aperture priority. So because I like to control my background bouquet bokeh, or however you want to say it. And then the next question is from John Beebe. He wants to know. He says, "I was watching a movie. We were soldiers, and they had several scenes with Joey Galloway, uh, played by Barry Pepper. They showed him defending himself with an M16, then picking up his Nikon and shooting again." Did this sequence of events actually happen? Are the stills in the movie actual pictures? Have any of you been in a situation where you had to abandon your camera then pick it up again? So that last piece I can speak to. I have no idea if those <laughs> were actual pic- pictures from from uh, his, the events. But from my time in the military, I can tell you that when we were going through training and what they teach us in terms of or what they taught us in terms of when do you shoot and when do you shoot uh, was you you take photographs when you can and that means you're not going to put anybody else in danger and it's not interfering with the mission itself so uh it's just basically common sense you know and you're not going to be in the middle of the, you know at night taking pictures with your flash or anything stupid like that you're you know <laughs> you're, you're trying to hide from the enemy taking flash photos of your of the guys around you you know so yeah yeah that would be a bad idea that would be like a christian bale incident um, yeah. but with much more dire consequences. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's just basically common sense. You know, you shoot when you can, you document, and photography, when you're in life-threatening situations, photography is secondary, even though it's your primary mission, your your ultimate primary mission is not to get anybody hurt and not to compromise anything. So that's the quick answer to that. Coming up next week on This Week in Photography, we're going to have an interview with uh, David Dushman. He's the guy behind the pixelatedimage.com blog. He's a travel photographer. And I think by then, if not shortly thereafter, he'll have a book that you can actually purchase on the shelves called Within the Frame, uh, The Journey of Photographic Vision. And he was very clear when I spoke with him to, uh, to, to say that this is not a technique, a photographic technique book. It's about when you travel to distant locations like Ron Brinkman and Alex Lindsay often do. Um, to instead of taking the photos that you expect to take, like you're you're in Paris and you're taking a picture of the Eiffel Tower that has been photographed from every imaginable angle, to stop and turn around and look behind you and take pictures of actually what's going on, so you can remember remember the scene and not just the the tourist attractions. I take very few pictures of tourist attractions when I'm when I'm in places like Paris. But uh, be- but you also take I- other pictures, right? No, I take lots of pictures. I just don't take them very much of the what because I'm like, you know, I can go get a book and it'll have all those pictures, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll be better than whatever I took. <laughs> yeah, and that's you know, it's funny. That's yeah. exactly that's that's almost verbatim what he said in the interview. You know, it's it's that's been done before, probably better than what you'll do it as, and in different ways. So why not take something and try to think outside the box? Right. Cool. And uh, coming up between weeks, we're going to be, of course continuing to shave off the rough edges on twiplog.com and making it a better place for 
for all of the goodness. So, and then one quick note on twitblog.com, the interview with David Dushman, or the interview actually this week with Philip Andrews, um, as you heard when we played that, it was a, a sort of a shortened, truncated version of that because we didn't want to uh, give you the whole thing. We want to give you the the opportunity to download the whole thing on twitblog.com. So head over there. A lot of people have been giving us comments that the, the, the show is running a little long, so we're mm-hmm. trying to keep the show um, to a kind of a disciplined length, uh, but we don't want to cut into our interviews. So, yes. um, so we, we're going to do the interviews longer, but we're going to keep them shorter on the show. If you really want to hear the rest of the interview, you can go up to twip, twiplog.com. Yep. And if you have any comments on that new format, which I'm sure you will, and I don't need to say this anyway, where can they leave their comments, Aaron? Uh, they can leave them uh, right through the blog. Uh, there's a submit a listener question area, which we've been using for that, but I'm also going to add a feedback form as well. So if you just want to leave feedback specifically about the blog or the show, but not in the form of a question for the show, you'll have that option too. Excellent. And with that, uh, we'll bring the show to a close. Where can people find you, Aaron, now since you're on the mic? You can find me at my blog, halfpress.com, uh, or on Twitter, it's halfpress, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S, and I'm certainly spending quite a lot of time on twiplog.com. You'll be hearing from me there, too. Excellent. And Ron Brinkman, where are you at? You can find me at my blog, uh, digital digitalcomposting.com, and on the Twitters as Ron Brinkman. Excellent. Alex Lindsay? Uh, you can find me on the Twitters, Alex Lindsay, all one word. I'm working. My blog is almost done. I've been working it once. We had so much success with Squarespace that I'm now uh, playing with my own um, on uh, my own blog on Squarespace, and so that will hopefully be up uh, in the next uh, week or two. Oh, very cool. And you can find me, Frederick Van Johnson, on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter at twitter.com/slash/frederickvan. F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-V-A-N. And that's it for this week in photography. For this week, it's time to take that lens cap off. 